And well, it's good to see you today. We're continuing in 1 Corinthians. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be finishing that chapter up today, and then next week we'll start in chapter 7. It usually works that way when you finish 6. 7 typically comes right after it. But um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and then through the end of the chapter we've been looking at some some temptations that they've been facing, and we're going to deal with some more today, and some of the arguments that they have been using to justify and to um, uh, condone the, 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 the tolerance of temptation. We're not sure how much they were involved in it, but we know that they were tolerating it by the things that Paul quotes them as having said and then addresses. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at his arguments concerning their justification and protection of temptation towards sin. Let's look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. We'll read 12 and 13, and then we'll take them just about individually from there to the end. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You know, Corinth had a, it was a town of extremely dubious reputation in the ancient world. Uh, someone wrote in 20 AD that uh, the temple of Aphrodite was so rich that there were a thousand prostitutes who worked there. Well, modern, scholar, modern uh, excavation looks like there were probably about a hundred, but that's still a lot, you know, still a lot going on there. Um, the, the city was extremely wealthy um, because of all of the trade that went on there. And um, sea captains would spend fortunes there. Uh, let's look at a map. I sent a map to Troy and them this week, and he said, ooh, we hadn't had a map in a long time. Don't you love a good map? There's you a map. <laughs> Corinth sits right there on that little bitty isthmus that connects Greece up to the north here with Peloponnese. And when you're coming from Asia off to the east, you have to go around the boot, the foot of Peloponnese there, and that's kind of some treacherous waters, and it's longer. And so they found a way to come out of the Aegean Sea and across that isthmus, that's a four-mile isthmus, to cross that and then be able to go into the Ionian Sea to go on over to Rome. And so what they did, they built a road across that isthmus, a four-mile-long road. And ships would come in from the east, and uh, small ships, they would put them up on wheels and they would portage them across that four-mile isthmus. Larger ships, they would bring them in from the east, unload the cargo, portage the cargo, put it on a large ship on the west side, take that on over to Rome. And so with all of that commerce coming through there, there was a lot of money going through Corinth. Uh, it was an extremely wealthy town. Well, it got destroyed in about 150 B.C., and then the Romans came in and rebuilt it in 40, about 45 B.C., and it never regained its former glory. But by the time Paul came along, it, it, it had rebuilt enough that it was an extremely wealthy city. There were two main things that drove it. Religion, the worship of Aphrodite. There was a temple there to the goddess of Aphrodite, and... And the way to worship the goddess of Aphrodite was to go visit one of the servants of Aphrodite who just happened to be uh, soiled doves, is what they were called in the Old West, ladies of the evening, prostitutes, okay? Both men and women worked there. And that was the way that Aphrodite, uh, they, they funded the temple there. That's how they got money, because you'd come and pay. And it was a request for Aphrodite to make our crops fertile and, and send us good harvests. And um, with all of that kind of stuff going on, 
um, and the money that was going on, it was, it was a pretty, pretty raucous place, to say the least. And, you know, we look at, we look at uh, portrayals on the side of Grecian urns, you know. Uh, this is uh, the, our impression of a Grecian urn out of the music man, and it's all so nice and pretty, and everybody has the nice hair and pretty clothes. That's not the way it was. <laughs> not the way it was. Sin always looks better at night with the lights bright and the, the, the perfectly framed picture and the manicured everything. You go to the French Quarter at noon, it's a different picture, amen? <laughs> you can smell the vomit and see the buildings falling apart, and you go, ooh, yikes, let's turn the lights back off, you know, because it looks better in the dark. And we look at it and go, well, it was just so wonderful. No, it wasn't. Distance lends enchantment to the view. Reality is always worse than fiction. And the, the ode to a Grecian urn, it wasn't like that at all. These, these prostitutes, men and women, were chained, slaves, in stalls like cattle. And similar to what, we had, what they had over in Pompeii, there would be a picture very probably above the door to show what specialities were in, engaged in in that particular stall. It was a hideous, horrible thing. And when people came there, you know, a lot of sea captains that brought their ships in there to get their cargo across. One guy said, the voyage to Corinth isn't for just any man. It, it was a tough place to be. And now Paul had spent a year and a half there, and um, he had a lot invested in these people. He knew the temptations that were going on there, the temptations to the sin that occurred there, the debauchery. And he wrote them, as we saw last week up in verse 11, says, some of you were doing the same thing. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There's something different about you. You have been called out of that. And I don't want you to go back into that lifestyle. They find themselves being tempted to go into the Corinthian lifestyle. Apparently, if you were called a Corinthian lass, it was not a compliment. Uh, it would be kind of like you, you, you star on the e-network. You know, it wouldn't be a compliment in our day. But anyway, and they, they just didn't know if they saw it as that terrible of a thing because, well, I got saved, but there are a lot of people in my family that hadn't gotten saved. Grandpa and Grandma hadn't gotten saved, and they're very kind to me. They love me, and, but they're still doing all these things, so maybe it's not all that terrible after all, and I have to live here for crying out loud, and it is the culture. So they had their arguments to defend their dabbling in sin just a little bitty bit and here are the arguments verses 12 and 13 all things are lawful for me they use that one twice all things are lawful for me and then a third one the third time they say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food now he's already told them up in verse 9 don't be deceived by all of this they're beginning to fall into a thought pattern that was common in the first century a thought pattern that says there's a difference between the spirit and the flesh the spirit is eternally saved god has done an eternal work in my spirit it is set aside it's sacred it's safe it's going to heaven the body is for this world so i can have all the fun in my flesh that i want and it will not impact what is going on in my spirit in the least and so i'm going to go live a debauched life and nobody's going to have a problem with it. it's not going to affect either of the other and Paul says, really? Are you out of your minds? <laughs> and friends, we have that same thought today. We have entire organizations built around you can do whatever you want in your flesh and your spirit's safe. And it's not wisdom, it is a lie, absolute lie from the pit. And so Paul attacks it head on. Look there in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That's what they're saying. And his response is, but not all things are helpful. <laughs> Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's good for you. 
You know what's interesting? He didn't even address the nonsense of the argument. All things are lawful for me. That's nonsense. All things are not lawful. In Ephesians 4, don't steal anymore. <laughs> let the thief steal no more. Rather, let him work. In Colossians chapter 3, put to death whatever is earthly among you, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the passion, the evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Not all things are legal, not lawful. He, it's absolute nonsense. He didn't even address that. Colossians 3, don't lie to one another. Don't do that. There's conduct that the maturing Christian is going to continue to fight to get out of their lives. Now listen, getting rid of the conduct does not put me in the kingdom. Oh, if I can just clean up my life, it'll put me in the kingdom. No, 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 no. Get, getting rid of the conduct does not put me in the kingdom, but being placed in the kingdom by the forgiveness and work of Christ makes it so that now I want to have that conduct out, and now I'm able to have that conduct out. Amen? Before I get saved, I don't have power over it. I'm enslaved to it, as we'll see in just a few minutes. I'm, I'm under its purchase. There's nothing I can do about it. But after we become a Christian, our desires change and our abilities change because of what he has done inside us. But I'm sorry, they're like argumentative teenagers. Sorry, guys. It's like we don't have argumentative teenagers in this church. Amen? We just have teenagers who are so kind and gracious and loving to their parents and their youth director and everyone else. Amen? Okay, there you go. But anyway, you've heard about argumentative teenagers. <laughs> They're just trying to justify their sin because of the desire that they have for it. And their argument well, is, well, if I didn't have the desire, I wouldn't be driven to it. The desire is proof that God wants me to do this. And since I have the desire and since all things are lawful for me, that proves it's okay. I don't want you to be driving fast, but I really want to drive fast. Oh, well, in that case, I'm so sorry. There's a trophy waiting for you at the end. Anyway. <laughs> I guess that's a generational reference, huh? Anyway, listen, if the desire justifies the conduct, then let's, let's open the jails and let's have a free-for-all. Friends, there are a lot of desires that we might experience just like those the Corinthians were wrestling with, but the desire and benefit do not always mesh. We, we put restraints on ourselves because of relative benefit. We look at the benefit of it, and we look at the, the difficulty that it would ensue if I went with the benefit. You know, okay, I like watches, okay? So you go in a watch store. Ooh, that's a pretty watch. Ooh, I like that watch. Well, I can't afford that watch, so what am I going to do? I think, I think I'm going to steal that watch. I think I'll steal that watch. And so we look at that and we decide relative benefit. Now, if I steal that watch, I have that watch, and it's a really nice watch. But if I get caught, I get to share a communal shower with bad guys. <laughs> Let me pray about this. We, we weigh relative benefit. And so we decide, well, I don't think I'm going to steal that watch after all. And we govern ourselves. And we look at it and say, well, what about victimless crimes? Look there. What does it say? All things are lawful for me. And Paul's response, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Who's the victim now? Now who has been victimized? Friend, we victimize ourselves. In John 8, Jesus looks at him and says, listen, I'm telling you. Now, that when he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, that's what that means. Listen, I'm telling you. <laughs> 
Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. How do you like being a slave? How's that work for you? It says in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Why would I go back to the very thing that I have been set free from? Galatians 5, For you were called to freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And in 2 Peter 2, he said, Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now who's the victim? And friends, when we give sin permission in our lives to take control, we become enslaved to it, and we are the victims. We have made ourselves the victim. Well, I'm not hurting anyone but myself. Bing, 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 bing. Right? You're an anyone. And to be a slave, to be addicted, to be ruled, is to have something in control of us other than the Holy Spirit. And then they have a second argument that implies they're using this concerning sexual immorality. Look there in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul's response, yeah, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And here's their syllogism. It states, I desire food. Food quenches that desire. Therefore... It is right to eat all the food that I want. And then they're tying that to sexual immorality by saying, I have sexual drive. That person will meet my sexual drive, so I'm going to do whatever I want to meet that sexual drive. In other words, the desire implies permission. Okay, there's a word for that. Nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. And you know... Have you ever noticed how we always use that argument about something we want? If I don't want it, I'm not going to use that argument. Well, it's good for me. Well, you know, protein's good for me, and grub worms are loaded with protein. <laughs> Therefore, right, I need some protein, and monkey brains are just loaded with, with protein. Therefore, right, we never use it for stuff we don't want. Now, someone somewhere in the world just loves a good grub worm, you know, and they want the monkey brains, and so they're going to use that argument in their situation. I'll bet you a dollar not one of us is going to stop by grub worm filet on the way home. <laughs> monkey brains express. Not going to happen here. Because we only use this argument for things that we have decided we want. We're willing to let that one rule over us. And in Corinth, they were allowing their cravings to drive them by arguing food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So they really would go to the Colosseum. We were at Caesarea by the sea in Israel several years ago, and they took us into the reconstructed, the preserved buildings there, and took us into the room. They really would go into the Colosseum, and they would gorge themselves on food, and then they would go into that room where there's a sign hanging up that says, Vomitorium. <laughs> Bill Murray in Saturday Night Live back in the 70s working in the vomitorium. They really did it. And then they would go and gorge themselves with food again. The desire tells me that it's okay to do this. And Paul looks at that and says, this is nonsense. And in a society known for unrestrained sexual conduct, the Corinthians are using the argument of food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food as justification for meeting sexual desires as well. And Corinthians, just like in our own society, argued that the desire for sex justified meeting that desire by any means possible. 
And Paul is going to use six arguments to take this thing apart. Look there in verse 13. He's going to use six arguments. This is the first one. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And his response, and God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, why would you spend so much time worrying about something that is going to be destroyed with use in the first place? Which do you treat with greater care? Your grandmother's china or a paper plate? Now, you're not going to throw the paper plate on the floor and rub it around a little bit and then pick it up and put food on it. You're going to take care of the paper plate. It gets its own little cabinet at our house, you know. Sometimes you have to have two because, bless God, that, that chicken meat is just kind of heavy on that side of the plate. But which are you going to treat with greater care, your grandma's china or your paper plate? What are you doing with the paper plate when you get done with it? I don't care if it's chinette. You're throwing it away. But grandma's china, you're going to want to hand that to the kids, and you're going to hand it to grandkids. and You want to take care of this because it has long-term value. And how much attention should be paid is Paul's argument. This thing is going to be destroyed with use. Why in the world do we put so much attention into it? Greater wisdom would invest in that thing that Make sure there's health and protection for the thing that's going to have long-term value, which is your spirit. And we can argue, well, this is, this is just our culture, and we want to be culturally relevant. Well, friends, culture is not synonymous with Christian, even our culture. And the more influence the culture has in the church, the less influence the church has in the culture. And God has placed us to be a life-changing, life-giving force in culture. And to what degree the Corinthians are actually engaged in this, we do not know. But Paul knows what their, what their situation, their living situation is, and so he's addressing himself to it. And he uses as an argument there in verse 13 the matter of ownership. To whom does your body belong? Look there in verse 13b. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. It's almost as if your body's on loan. And it's going to be returned to the one who loaned it to you. What kind of shape do you want it to be in when you give it back to him? So I loaned this guy a recliner one time. They had a broken leg or something, I forget now. But they needed a recliner, sure. So I loaned him a recliner. Weeks later, called me up, we're having some meetings. He said, I'll bring it to the meetings. Okay, good. So he's driving up the interstate, 80 miles an hour down in southern Utah, and the thing goes flying out of his truck. <laughs> he walks in. And says, well, I had your recliner in the back of the truck, but it flew out of the truck, and it's in pieces all over the side of the interstate. And if you want it, I guess you can go pick up the pieces. Laughed, turned around, and walked off. How much more did I loan that guy? You're going to loan it to someone who's going to take as much care of Grandma's china as you are. And Paul says, no, this body is not yours. It, it, it belongs to the Lord. And the Lord for the body. First off, the first argument he uses is the body is meant for the Lord. The second argument is there in verse 14. And God, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The same power he exerted in raising Jesus from the dead, he is going to exert by raising us from the dead. And how tragic then to present to him a recliner shattered on the side of the interstate and tell him, I think you can put it all back together okay. How disrespectful to take for granted the ability of God. And he uses the argument that he is going to bring this thing back to life. And, you know, it's going to fall apart by appropriate use and natural decay. 
but I want to give it back to him in as good a shape as I can. And so we take care of this thing and quit selling it to someone to whom it does not belong. It doesn't even belong to us. We'll see that in just a few minutes because this belongs to the Lord. And it will be raised by his power. So that's the second argument. Look there in verses 15 through the 17 for the third argument. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Just as the act of sex makes you one flesh with that other person. When you go visit those prostitutes, when you engage in that conduct, you are making Christ, the eternally sinless one, one with sin. You cannot do this. Should we, should we unite him with sin? Paul's statement is, never. And he goes back to his near chiding them. You know, in chapter 1, verse 5, he said, you, you, you have all kinds of wisdom and knowledge. And then there in verse 15, do you not know? <laughs> where, where are your brains at? Well, they're monkey brains. They've been cooked over there. Anyway. <laughs> is it appropriate, verse 15, to take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And his response to that is two words that put into one that are used 15 times in the New Testament. Paul uses them 14 of those times, and his traveling companion Luke used them the other time over in uh, Luke chapter 20. And it is two words put together, okay? It is the word no with a real solid absolutely in front of it. <laughs> absolutely not. Never. You cannot do that. God forbid. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound? Absolutely not. Now, you, you know, at your workplace, I'm sure that you've heard someone else use a culturally accepted term to imply no, not by any means, but we're going to stick with absolutely not for these purposes, okay? There are several times that he looks at us and says, you cannot do this. Romans 6, 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Romans 9, is there injustice on God's part? Absolutely not. And he tells them here, shall we take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Absolutely not. And there's one other time he uses that. There's another time that I really like that he uses it. It's, it's those words, God forbid. Should I glory in anything other than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. God forbid that I glory in anything other than that because Jesus is all that matters and His cross is what makes it real to me. And friends, the reality is when you became a Christian, you became united to Christ. You became one with Him. You are in Him. He is in us. He said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, you'll produce much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? The very definition of what it means to be a Christian is that we have been united with Christ. And Paul looks at him and says, can we dare to join the temple of God with immorality? Absolutely not. This is the third argument he uses. Your debauchery unites Christ to that debauchery. Look in chapter in verse 18. Here's his fourth argument. Flee from sexual immorality. Here's the reason. For every sin a person commits is outside the body. 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And over in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, defilement doesn't come from outside. I can put alcohol in my body and it'll make me act really stupid, you know. But, but that's not the source of the defilement. The source of the defilement is my mind, my own, my own broken, fallen nature that still craves things like that. And so it doesn't come from the outside. It's not what I eat. It's that, it's that fallen nature inside of me. But he says here that there's something about sexual sin that is a desecration of our very person. He said, but sexually immoral sins, person sins, against his own body there just seems to be something different i've known a lot of preachers who have fallen into sexual immorality and it's just such a tragedy things just change things just change there, there, there's there's just a, a note there's an, a tone that goes with them for the rest of their lives now there's some that are going to act like nothing happened it didn't bother them at all because there are sociopaths everywhere you go you know you're going to find them somewhere but what a tragedy to be set aside because of foolishness because we didn't put safeguards in place to protect ourselves so that we're not going to be set aside for, with a sin against our own body. There are some who have allowed God to use it to break them in areas that they were not aware of, but they're still just... Un, you know, I had a buddy take me one time to some meetings and um, in an organization he'd been involved in in years. And it was a series of meetings over several days, and you go there and you stay. And so we're sitting there in one of the meetings, and... Right at the start, he punches me, and there are people on the, on the, the podium, the stage up front, you know, all the way across, and these folks are going to be speaking over the next days. And he punches me and said, that guy committed adultery, and that guy committed adultery, and that guy committed adultery with that guy's wife. And, that guy. and I looked at him kind of like, and you're here, and you brought me here? What are we doing here? He said, in every one of them. It changed their ministry. It just changed who they were because, friends, there's something about sexual immorality that is a sin against our own body. And we have to be aware of this and, and put safeguards in our life so that we don't fall into this kind of nonsense. Billy Graham passed away this past week. He told a story about one of his associates who was preaching in Paris years ago. and He was staying at a, he was staying at a motel that you had to lock the door from the inside with a key. You had to unlock it with a key on the outside, and you had to lock it with a key on the inside. Well, it's interesting, you know, you get sex, you get temptations to all kinds of things in all kinds of different ways. When things are going bad, you get tempted. Well, when things were going good, you can get tempted too. And things had gone real good, and he knew he was being tempted with some stuff, and there were some, some folks there, some ladies there giving him eyeballs. And so he went to his motel room, and he locked the door from the inside, opened the window, and threw the key as far as he could throw it. Because bless God, I'm not getting stupid tonight. And friends, there are safeguards that we have to build into our lives. There are safeguards Pastor Kevin and I have built into our lives because we don't want to get this far along and then get stupid. We don't want to bring dishonor to the kingdom. We don't want to bring sin against our own bodies is what it says. And so we look at this and we put safeguards in our lives to ensure and what do we do about it how, what, what's one of the safeguards how can we do it look there in verse 18a flee from sexual immorality friends there's no reasoning with it there's no bargaining with it there's no dance of the woolly monsters you know you tell a kid don't touch the tv and what do they do they just kind of you know they start dancing you know just to kind of see if they can touch it a little bit none of that none of that 
we run. <laughs> you just run. <laughs> you flee sexual immorality. You don't go to that part of town. You don't go to websites that'll take you to websites that might have that kind of website on it. You just stay away from it. You don't find ways to be alone with that kind of person. You just run from it. And we've known plenty of folks who have run. And you say, well, that'll make me look stupid. Look stupid. <laughs> it's better than being stupid. <laughs> Obvious story is Joseph. Potiphar's wife down there in Egypt. She sees him walking around and serving in the house and she decides she needs some of that and she says to him in Genesis 39 12 lie with me I don't think she had brand new recliners that she was just wanting to check out but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house he ran and you know what's interesting about sin you can't really run from covetousness you can't really run from lying you can't really run from sins of thought now we can resist them, we can stand against them. 2 Corinthians 10 says we can take them captive, we can take those thoughts captive, but you can't really run from it because the farther you run, what, what goes with you? Your brain is carrying that bad, that, that temptation, right? And friends, there are times when the only appropriate response is an extreme response. That's why Jesus said if your hand offends you, cut it off. That's what he's talking about. Do whatever is necessary to get this thing out of your life. And Paul looked at Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 22 and said, Flee youthful lust. Flee the, th the temptation that young men are often drawn to. Flee that and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's not just a matter of quit doing that. It is a matter of pursuing the right thing. You know, in Romans chapter 8, it says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And we think, well, if I can just get loose from the law of sin and death, then I'm, I'm good. Everything's fine. No, that's not what he said. We don't get free on that side so that we can wander with the winds and just find out where life takes me. I'm going to follow my heart. Don't follow your heart. <laughs> it's broken. It's black. It's apart from Jesus. It is deceitful and desperately wicked is what Jeremiah said. He said, we are loosed, we are freed from the law of sin and death for the express purpose of being bound to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's like a boat in a slip. I want to be tied off on this side, but I'm tied over here and my rope won't reach. So what do I have to do? You got to let go of that one. And friends, the only way to let go of that one is for Jesus to come and do a work in our lives. So that... Not so we can wander off and follow the breeze and every current that blows. No, so that we can be attached solidly to this side over here, which is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And friends, there are times when in order to do that appropriately, the only thing we can do is to turn and run. And we've known folks that have run and look like idiots doing it, and they have a testimony at the end of the day. One commentator said, There are some sins which a man can resist, some about which he can reason without danger of pollution. But this is a sin where a man is safe only when he flies. <laughs> Grow wings, baby. Get out of there. Because it's, number four, a sin against ourselves. Fifthly, in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. Now look, if we were to ask, okay, what's a problem, church, in the, in the New Testament, it'd be easy to say Corinth. 
you know, they, they got some problems going on there. Paul has already told them, even the Corinthians, even the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16, even they are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. God's Spirit lives inside even them. And friends, God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and to desecrate your body is to desecrate the temple. Have you ever noticed how there's some buildings that when you walk into them, there's just, there's just a, you approach it differently because the building, this thing represents something. You approach it differently. And friends, that's what your body is. It is the temple. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are to tr- act accordingly. Jesus promised us, if anybody loves me, He will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Friends, we are individually each temples of the Holy Spirit and as we come together, we're bricks that make up the house. It says in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. As we come together on Sunday mornings, as you get together at community group, you're a brick. Now I know the guy next to you, you think he's a brick head. No, he's a brick. He's a living stone. And as you come together... Each one of us individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. And as we come together, we build a house. Listen, this, this, we, this isn't a sacred building because of the bricks and mortar. The bricks and mortar are made sacred by your presence. You're the one who brings the holiness. Because holiness lives inside of you. And Paul is saying, don't you recognize, don't desecrate the temple. And the temple is you. His fifth reason, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And then the sixth reason there in verse 19b and 20. says, because you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, you no longer hold title to your own body. You do not belong to you anymore. Now next week we're going to see how this applies in marriage. That'll be real fun. (laughs) But the reality is, before we go into specific application, there is an eternal application, and that is you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Friends, before we met Jesus, we were sold under sin, according to Romans 7. We were absolutely sold under it. We had no freedom from it. Romans 6.20, it says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Didn't know it. Wouldn't have known righteousness if it kissed you on the lips. But what was the fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. We were sold under sin. But it says in Romans 6.17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. Friends, as a Christian, you've been set free from sin. Now, there's some of them that are still hanging on to you, and they're still dragging you down, and we're going to keep working on those things. In the continuing process of real life transformation, genuinely, practically being changed from who I am into who he is. It is a continuing process. He tells them over in 1 Corinthians 7, you were bought with the price, do not become slaves of men. And he tells us elsewhere in 1 Peter 1, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing this, 
You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And friends, all this happened for a reason. He redeemed you. He saved you. He set you free from sin for a reason. You, there's a reason. And it is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have a job to do. And that is proclaim the excellencies of the one who bought you. He took the children of Israel and he placed them where he did because it was the crossroads of the ancient world. There were massive highways that went from southeast to northwest, southwest to northeast. And when you, go to, if you, when you go to Jerusalem today and you stand at what they think is Calvary, there's a, there's a TV antenna broadcasting set up on the top of what they think is Calvary now, which I think that's kind of interesting. Okay, you've got the Savior of the world and you've got TV. But anyway, when you stand there and look at it, it at the base of it is crossroads of two huge, huge interstates in the Middle East. And right there at the base of Calvary is an enormous bus station. The whole world crossed that place. God placed them at the crossroads so that they could influence people from all over the world. And they looked at him and said, hey, you know, uh, we have other things going. We've got a TV station up there. We're going to watch Oprah. But anyway, um, no, we have other things going. The possessed look at, looked at the possessor and said, ah, no. And so God said, all right. I'm going to find me somebody that will do what I tell them to do. And that's when he purchased us. And friends, he doesn't set us in a physical crossroad all in one bunch. He takes us like grains of salt out of a salt shaker and shakes us all over the place so that we as individuals, each one of us, each one of us here this morning can influence society, the meat that we find ourselves in the middle of. We can give flavor to it and change to it because we are citizens of a different kingdom bringing the culture of that kingdom into this kingdom. How many of us have looked at the place where our little grain of salt has landed and gone, you know, I don't really like it here. Boy, if there were somewhere else, I mean, I'd rather go there. Friends, to despise the place is to despise the placer. And I know exactly what it's like to hate the place you live. I've lived in Mississippi. But friends, what a peace came. The day when I read that passage in Jeremiah 17, pray for the city that God places you in. Pray that it prosper, because as it prospers, you will prosper. And when I quit cursing Jackson, Mississippi, and started praying for Jackson, Mississippi, what changed? And friends, I know it can be hard living in Utah. I know it can be lonely. I know you can feel like the only grain of salt out there and a really big piece of meat. It's okay. Come to church. Get with some other grains. Get with some other brickheads. Let's build this sanctuary together. Go find you a community group. Find you a community group. You need fellowship. I just get so lonely. Yeah, you do. You need fellowship. Well, I don't know what community group to get with. You know what? Jared gets paid good money to be able to help you find a community group. Jared at risenlifeutah.org. Ask him. Because, friends, we cannot do this by ourselves. 
We belong to someone other than ourselves. And our sixth reason is you do not belong to yourself any longer. Sexual sins are sins against Christ who purchased us, against the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and against our very selves. So this closes the first section of this book where he deals with sin inside the church. And next week he's going to address himself in 1 Corinthians 7.1 to concerning the matters about which you wrote. Apparently they had sent him a letter. We got some questions for you. Okay, now I'll address those. But before we leave this section, would it be appropriate to ask ourselves how are we doing with what's in control of us? What's governing us? You know, because Wearsby, I like what Wearsby said. He said, it's interesting that most serious church problems begin as personal problems and sins in the lives of church members. You want problems in a church? Let there be problems in the lives of the church members. How are we doing? How are we doing with those things around us that like to hang on to us, keep us from serving Christ best, and hold control of us? Friends, if your football game evokes more passion out of you than serving Jesus, how are we doing with Jesus? If I'd rather watch that TV show, if I'm addicted to that TV show, which is extremely possible, or that network that we have running all day long, do we need to ask ourselves how we're doing with Jesus? Now look, I know that I have talked about sweet tea here in the past. I'm aware of that. Somebody asked me one time, said, if you could have just one food in heaven, one food in heaven, what would it be? And I thought hard. I tried to go New York steak. I tried to go, I tried to, sweet tea. That's it, baby. Sweet tea. I'm talking tea that when I put it in my mouth, it burns the inside of my mouth, okay? I'm not talking the stuff you get, you know. And I drink a gallon of that stuff every two or three days. And we can look at it and go, well, at least I wasn't drinking as much as Duck, Duck Dynasty, guys. He drinks one or two gallons a day. At least I'm not that bad. And then I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, but a gallon every two or three days is bad. Got to knock it off. So, for about the past three years now, I drink a gallon of tea about every two, maybe three months. So I fixed some the other day. <clears throat> fixed some tea the other day. It was, you know, time. And, and I got down to the bottom of the, the gallon, you know, and drinking that last little bit. Somebody said in the South, do they use, like, for Lord's Supper, do they use, like, tea and biscuits? And I'm kind of like, well, that'll work for me. You know, it'll be fine. And so I'm drinking the last glass of sweet tea, and as it's gone, I look at Donna and said, I think I'm going to make some more. And when I saw myself doing this, I realized, ah, rats. But all things are lawful for me. I will not be enslaved by anything. What is it that's got you? As Christians, we have been called to live a free life. What is it that's got you? What would you be willing to look at Jesus today and say, okay, I get it. You ready to deal with me on this one? All right, let's go. Let's do it. There are things in life beyond sweet tea. Don't tell anybody I said that, but it's true. What else is there? 
God, what is it that I've been hanging on to instead of you? Would you be willing to just bring it to him and say, God, you live in here. This is your body. And I've been using it like it's my own personal playground. And I'm really sorry about that. I don't want to do that anymore. There might be some in here, though, who have never made the first step of asking Jesus to be their Savior. I'd like to encourage you. Consider the fact that Jesus is the one who looked at our sin. He looked at our transgression and said, the price has got to be paid. You can't pay it, so I'm going to pay it. I love you so much, I'm going to pay it. And he died on the cross, not out of duty, not out of anger, but out of complete, reckless love for us. And friends, I have reminders at my house that when I look at it, I can just gaze at it. And remember, this, this is how the love of God was made plain, that he gave up his life for me. That I can look at it and remember God showed his love toward me and that while I was still a sinner, Jesus did that. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, he's, he's, he's ready to forgive. And it's as, as eternal and simple as this. To say, God, I did it. And I'm really sorry about that. I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. And I'm sorry. And I don't want to do that anymore. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I receive that forgiveness as my own. And in response, I give you my life. Here it is. It's yours. Do with me as you will. Let's pray. Father, thank you that apart from your revelation, we would have never, we would have never found you. Father, thank you that you revealed yourself to us. You gave us your word in the Bible, and then you made sure that I got a copy of it. Thank you. Father, it said in Philippians, if in anything you be otherwise minded, God will reveal that to you. Thank you, Father, that you're not going to leave us where we were, that you're going to reveal it to us. You're going to, you're going to bring us to continued maturity and real life transformation. And as we, as we, your children, sit here this morning, Father, what is it? What is it that you're making clear to us right now? And as each one of us go into that sacred place with you, that, that temple that we are, God, we ask you to deal with that thing. We want victory in that also. Father, for those who have never accepted you as their Savior, would you please show to each one of us our need for Jesus. We can't work hard enough to get rid of the sin. We can't work hard enough to be clean. The only cleansing that comes is by the finished work of Jesus. Father, show us our need for Jesus. Hope you.